the book, how we got it, how to get the most out of it. This is part 10. We've actually wrapped up the segment dealing uh, with the technical side of how we got the Bible, why we have the books we have, why we don't include additional, why we include all the ones we have, how do we know, is this the same Bible that Jesus endorsed? And we answered all those questions in about the first, I would say, six, five or six parts of this series. And so we're actually dealing more with the second part of that issue now, how to get the most how to get the most out of it. How God's word does its work. This is the subject we started last Sunday night. How God's word does its work. It's the same text that we're going to look at tonight. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 13 through 17. Paul writes to young Timothy. You pick it up in the middle of a sentence. While evil people and imposters will go... On from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. So sin, um, the blindness of sin isn't something that sets into one part of your being and remains static. The, the effects of sin on your life are no more static than the effects of cancer. That there's a metastasizing of sin in the life. Redemption is not just advisable... It's not just an upgrade, it's essential. But as for you, 14, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. And so we talked about the Example, we looked at that. Now, verse 16, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. That the man or woman of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. So when we kind of launched into this last week, we saw the way Paul wanted to remind Timothy that there was still immense profit to be had in just continuing in the scriptures. And the reason Timothy needs to be reminded of it, and the reason we need to be reminded of it, is because we usually don't take brand new truths for granted. We take old truths for granted. And so it's it's very easy for the most basic, most important forces for change to sort of be starved out of their proper place in our, in our lives. So the idea that Paul wants Timothy getting ingrained in his mind so Timothy will teach it to the church, the idea is that more spiritual damage is done by neglect than by rebellion. We... we and, and, and the problem there is, just because of conscience and the work of the Holy Spirit, we're usually aware, even if we don't listen, we're usually aware of when we're rebelling against God. We're not always aware, by the na very nature of neglect, we're not always aware when we neglect important things from God.
In fact, what you and I often see, you, you, you see someone, and you, and you think, how, how, how did that person, I sat in them with church week after week after week, how did that person make this decision? How, how, how does a person go from here to there? And when you see something that just looks like flat out rebellion to the spirit of God in any Christian's life. Know that you're in, what you're observing there is just at that specific moment. It's only the outward fruit of an inward neglect that had been brewing for a long time. Only nobody saw that. Because we don't usually notice that. We don't usually even care about that as much as we should until, until the rebellion. Until the catastrophe. Until the disaster. Until the huge blunder. But it's the neglect previously that, that caused it. Neglect would have provided this. Dealing with neglect, sorry, would have provided the spiritual strength and light and wisdom. Just ordinary balance in the sound teaching of God's word. If it weren't neglected, if we considered it, like we talked about in this morning's teaching. It would have kept the life from that flare-up, from that rupturing of grace. And so, Paul tells Timothy... He doesn't need something new, something spectacular. He only needs to continue in the scriptures as, well, as he was taught from childhood. And as we jump ahead in this very passage, we find that the scriptures all by themselves, verse 17, if all by themselves, the scriptures, if they're studied faithfully, humbly, Obediently, they are absolutely, the word used is adequate to make each of us into a man or a woman of God. It's the same thing Jesus said. Jesus said it in John 8, 31 and 32. If you abide in my word, it's, it's the abiding thing. If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. You will know the truth. The truth will set you free. So, here's where we're going tonight. How do the scriptures do that in my life? That's what I want to know. How do the scriptures make us absolutely adequate? Adequate doesn't mean average. It means all the resources necessary. That's what it means. There's an adequacy. A fulfilling of purpose in the scriptures. They will accomplish this. How do they make us adequate to be men and women of God? How do they set us free? Do they do that for everyone? Everyone who has a Bible? Everyone who cracks it open? Is it always going to be successful in that way? Is it an automatic process? If it's not, then well, then what are the steps? Paul says there are four. Four progressive steps in producing biblical change, and they're outlined in four phrases in verse 16. All scripture is breathed out by God 
and profitable for four things. Teaching, reproof, correction, training in righteousness. We're going to look at the first one today. Point number one, the word of God is profitable for teaching. There should be something more exciting than this. Should there not? My Christian Ed class this morning, we're studying 1 Kings 18, where Elijah calls down fire from heaven. There, that. Teaching. Some translations have the word doctrine. It's the same idea. This is Paul's emphasis. So he's not talking about the manner of teaching or the act of teaching. He's talking about the content of the teaching. The word of God is, it's the curriculum. It's the textbook. If you want to know God, you have to start with his word. It's not all there is to it. But it is the only starting place. In fact, you will probably know God no better than you know his word. And that's why Paul talks about several things that the word does. But the first thing he lists is this idea of of teaching. You You can't follow what you don't know. You can't obey what you haven't learned. You'll end up living your life under the tyranny of just being pulled in different directions by changing impulses and moods and what you thought was a hot worship time and which one didn't reach your heart. And so you'll just drift with your emotional states and you'll start to measure spirituality by that, which is a dangerous game. And so Paul explains... Why knowing God is so closely linked with knowing his word. He does it in 2 Timothy 3, 16, the very first part where he says, all scripture is, well, it's, it's breathed out by God, he says. And, and that idea is so important that the New Testament won't just drop it. It's actually expanded on in other places. Here's, here's the Apostle Peter's take. In 2 Peter 1, 19 to 21... Peter has just been talking about the experience he had where he was on the Mount of Transfiguration, where he saw Jesus transfigured, and Moses, and Elijah. An unbelievable experience. You pick up his thought right there when he says, and we have something more sure. Are you kidding me? We have something better than that, he says. The prophetic word to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Okay, that's the same idea as that short phrase from Paul, all Scripture is breathed out by God. So, apart from this starting point, apart from this starting point, we're left with nothing but human opinions. I I heard Bruxy Cavey in a recent video where he now, he doesn't believe in inerrancy. 
He believes the only inerrant thing we have is not the book, it's Jesus. Jesus is the only perfect revelation. And, and it, it sounds impressive, except, except which Jesus are we talking about? And he says, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. It's not a book, it's Jesus. Yeah, but where, where do you have Jesus saying that? And how do you know he said it? The only way I know Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, is here. Do you have another source for that quote? Do you get what I'm saying? There's no point talking about an inerrant Jesus without an inerrant book because you haven't got a clue what Jesus is like without this book. And people buy it. They buy it. No one has to prove to me that Jesus is more precious than anything. The point is, Paul says, here's the starting place for what you're going to know, if you want to know it with certainty. And the book has to be true. Apart from the word, we're anchored to standards that float with the whims of public opinion. I've told the story before. It's one of my favorite stories. When Robert Schuller was still alive in the Crystal Cathedral, I mean, I never endorsed the teaching, but it was a neat place. I was there once for church, and it had this massive parking lot about the size of three football fields. He tells the story in one of his books of a little lady, and, and she was panicking. She came up, and she said she couldn't find her car, couldn't find her car anywhere in this massive parking lot. And he was very gracious, and he took, him, took her himself. They walked out. She had his arm, and he said, where did, you, where did you park it? She said, well, I parked it by a school bus. I thought it would mark the spot. And he said, that's good. Lady, next time, park it by that light post. Something that won't move. The church has nothing else to teach but the word of God. It's not one of the things we do. It's the thing we do. Just pay attention to me, okay? Focus. <laughs> if you're in a church that doesn't major on teaching the scriptures, regardless of how successful it is in other areas, I'm not saying there aren't other things that need to get done. What I am saying, if you're in a church that doesn't start here with the teaching of the scriptures, you're wasting your time. You're wasting your time. If your children knew their college or university courses exactly as well as you know the scriptures, would you be happy paying for their courses? Could they pass and get a job? Would they excel in their field? Never lose your zeal. You know, Paul has to remind Timothy, he has to tell Timothy to remind the church, and we take that through the inspiration of the scriptures and we apply it to our church. We apply it to Cedarview Community Church. Never lose your zest for the word of God. We all know David, David, the man after God's own heart. How did he get that way? Was he just born lucky? Under a good sign? He tells us, Psalm 19, verse 7, through 13, the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. 
the, the precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart, the commandments of the Lord, pure, enlightening the eyes, the fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever, the rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, much fine gold. 11, moreover by them is your servant warned, in keeping them there is great reward. Psalm 119, how can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to your word. It's not just willpower. With my whole heart I seek you. How does he seek God? Let me not wander from your commandments. I have stored up your word in my heart. But, but we, don't, we don't think about that as seeking. Seeking God, surely that's a prayer meeting. I mean, that's where you seek God. And it's just interesting to me, when David talks about seeking God with his whole heart, he talks about his commandments and he talks about his word. Do you, do you understand that what we're doing right at this moment is the most pure, sincere way when it's done with the right heart? This is how you seek God? Or do you think of this, this is just like the academic part, and then later is when we seek God. And I'm not belittling the later. I'm just saying, don't put this in a different class. This is just like doctrinal stuff. David says, this is how I seek God with my whole heart. This book. When you want your life changed, there may be many things to do. But when you want your life radically changed, it's important that you know what to do first. Because when you think about having your life transformed, that means changed, the first question you ought to immediately ask is, changed into what? There's a course we've sing, Lord, change me. And that's all we ever got to. And, and I, don't, I don't mean to be irreverent, but it makes it sound, are we talking about a diaper? Lord, change me. Well, what are we, how will you know what you're aiming at? What will be the standard? How will you know you're being changed for the better? What expert are you going to listen to? You will never treasure the word as you should until you recognize that all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable. And the first thing that makes it profitable is teaching. All right. Enough on that. Let, let me suggest to you some steps. Let me suggest some steps for receiving the most from the teaching of God's word. Either in corporate settings or in your private study. How to get the most from the teaching of the word. Let me give you some practical steps. I have one, two. Well, you can see how many I have. I keep forgetting you have notes. First. To produce biblical change, I must give the word adequate time in proportion to the time given to other pursuits. It's the last part of that sentence that's the most important. Ideas don't just enter your head. Ideas compete for space in your head. 
told you that it was a cute, cute story that actually happened to me. Sometimes you wonder whether these stories are true. This is honestly true. It happened in this church, and it happened recently where I asked. There was a, I'm sorry that I say a woman, but it was. It was a woman, and she, and, and she told me that she had made a resolution. She had felt that she was too scattered. She really wanted to follow Jesus, and she was going to concentrate. And I said, what are you going to concentrate on? She said, oh, lots of things. She might have been sincere, but it doesn't work that way. Ideas don't just enter your mind, they compete for space. It's not enough just to say, yes, I read God's word regularly. Good. That's a great thing to say. But if your regular study of the word, your daily study of the word is so insignificant when bounced, balanced with the energy and concentration you give to other areas, well then the word won't have the power you want it to have in your heart. Pastor Don, get real. That can't be true. I think Jesus said it was true. I think Jesus said it was true in Matthew 13, 22. The parable of the soils. Where he says, as for what was sown among thorns, this is the one who hears the word. Here's the word. Good seed, growing. But the cares of the world, the deceitfulness of riches, choke the word and it proves over time. See, that's what proves mean. It proves unfruitful. It proves unfruitful. Well, isn't this God's inspired word? Yes. How can it possibly be unfruitful? Well, its unfruitfulness wasn't due to its lack of power. It wasn't due to its lack of potential. The unfruitfulness came from the competition with other things in the same heart and mind. I need, I need, not only to study the word regularly, I need to give consideration. We talked about it this morning. I need to give enough consideration to the word, enough emphasis to, to dominate the competing objects of attention and affection in my mind. I need to give the word enough time and space to have it rinse my mind of competing ideas. I must give the word enough time and emphasis to overrule the pull and influence of the world, which is massive in my life. That there must be enough of this to create an adequate counterweight to the other influences of my life. Do you get what I'm saying? That's the first thing. Secondly, to produce biblical change, I must humbly and wholeheartedly agree with what the word says about my life. So, so... I will get nothing out of this book if I leave it. It's important to start here, but if I leave it at the point of just information, a download. If I leave it just at the point of factual information, the word will have little or no transforming effect. I, I can't study the word like I study European history or economics. I mean, I do need to know the content. 
I do need to know the doctrines. But I have to, I have to learn them at a different level than just a detached collecting of data. The Holy Spirit, it's the sword, the sword of the Spirit, right? The Holy Spirit won't render the transforming power of the word merely to my curiosity. It's submission that ignites the word. So, so the power of the word dries up to those who study it without a humble intention to agree with all of its verdicts, all of its judgments, all of its statements. And here's, here's, here's the best teaching on that that I can think of. It's James 1, 5 through 8. Here's a classic description of a powerless reception of divine truth. James 1, 5. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without repro- reproach. That's without a lecture. Reproach means... Um, the number of times I went to my dad, uh, and until I was, it was a different day, so don't laugh. But I can clearly remember when I got 25 cents for an allowance, and I can remember when I got 50 cents for an allowance. But when I went to 50 cents, and I went and asked for my allowance, it was, because it was 50 cents instead of 25, it was always accompanied with a lecture. What did you do with the last 50? That's giving with reproach. Okay. He gives generously to all without reproach. It will be given him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. That person must not suppose he will receive anything from the Lord. He's, he's a double-minded man. He's unstable in all his ways. Okay. James deals with a pretty practical issue. I mean, someone needs wisdom. That's what he's talking about. If any of you lacks wisdom. This isn't prayer for a gold Cadillac or money. If any of you lacks wisdom, maybe a major crisis. But James says it won't work if you approach God with a double mind. That's verse 8. That is, I can't approach God either in prayer or in the word if I'm not sure yet whether I'm going to do what God reveals I should do. You can't go to the word, you can't go to God for wisdom, and then decide whether you like what you're hearing. It's not like test driving a car. James says, so you can't can't fluctuate. You can't be double-minded. You can't be waffling when you approach God. That's what double-minded means. He's not yet committed to carrying out God's will when he receives it. And James says, you can't get a thing from God like that. And then, in typical fashion, as if maybe we didn't get it, James will drill down even a bit more, and he's going to talk specifically about the word, because that's what he's talking about. You jump down to 21 of James chapter 1, and he's going to say the same thing, but in a different way. It's a great teacher, James. Therefore, in other words, here's the same idea. Put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with 
meekness, the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. What kind of word is able to save your souls? The Bible? No, the implanted word. But be doers of the word, not hearers only, deceiving yourself. If anyone is a hearer of the word, not a doer, he's like a man that looks intently at his natural face in a mirror, for he looks at himself, goes away, and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the, the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. And the phrase that ought to jump out is 21, receive with meekness the implanted word. There's no lack of power in the word. It is an agent of incredible change. It is able to accomplish its purpose, but not for people who fiddle with it, who dabble with it, who argue with its judgments. And one of the most common ways we argue with the word without ever uttering a word, one of the common ways we argue with the word inwardly is when we encounter what the word says must be set aside in our lives. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness. Rampant wickedness is, is the um, cultures go through seasons. Wickedness is wickedness. Rampant wickedness is, is wickedness that's trending now. Uh, common, popular, justified, argued, paraded. Rampant wickedness. Because it... Cause it because it takes a very special grace and strength to resist wickedness that is culturally promoted. Right? It takes a special grace to confront wickedness that is culturally promoted because you're unpopular. And we don't like being, we like being liked. Put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness. Receive with meekness the implanted word. So many people receive nothing from the word, not because they don't pick it up, but because they won't put their iniquity down. They get nothing. They get nothing. Third, I'm almost done. To produce biblical change, I must apply the word to all my activities. And that's where that illustration in James 1, 22 to 25, about a person who looks in a mirror. There's only one good reason for getting out of bed and looking in a mirror. And that is, fix this so you don't frighten small children when you go out. Right? The word, James says... The one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, looks into it, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. So, so even biblical truth, even powerfly inspired, inerrant, breathed out by God, biblical truth is absolutely useless unless it's applied. Just, just like uh, knowing about soap won't make you clean. You have to use soap or whatever you use. The scriptures have to be obeyed. Jesus put it right in the Great Commission. 
teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. All right, we've, we've taken a lot of time on this. The first step in producing biblical change, and then we looked at three ways, three ways that teaching becomes effective in our lives. Three ways that knowing the truth of the word leads to transformation. Start with teaching. Start with the word. You'll start to see 30, 60, 100 fold. The, the idea is that something... Because teaching seems like such an ordinary thing, I don't mean my teaching, I mean whatever kind of teaching. Teaching from the word, that's what I'm talking about. Okay, I'm not talking about me. I'm talking about teaching from the word, however it comes into your life, your own study church, all, all the different ways. But there's something so ordinary appearing about it that it's hard for us to believe that that's what lights the fuse. And when Jesus talks about the seed in good soil, 30, 60, 100 fold, the, the, the idea here is, is that even though this looks very ordinary, look what we're doing tonight. I mean, you could be at home, you could be... We do this all the time, don't we? You sit there, I sit here, we go over the word. It's not a big deal. And Jesus says something exponential starts to happen with a beginning that looks so ordinary. It's profitable for teaching. And we have to be told that so we go to our graves still believing it. And everyone said, let's pray.